Ladies and gen- <laughs> <laughs> Long day. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Split Take Podcast. I'm your co-host, Jacob. In case you don't know, the Split Take Podcast is available on YouTube and Spotify and other places. By the way, iTunes, we need to get reviews on iTunes. There's like two, and that's it's very helpful for people to find it. So we should just stack iTunes with people we know, get them to leave reviews there. That's true. Uh, yeah, if you post a review to iTunes, we will read it in an ASMR voice. We'll call you we out. Will, we will review your reviews. One reviewer. One year from now, we'll get a free Criterion. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if I can contact people who review us. I don't think I can. We will get you a Criterion of your choice as long as it is, it is Shortcuts by Robert Altman. Uh, we, will, we will accept Francis Ha if we're feeling uh, generous. I feel like Francis Ha should be a cheaper Criterion than it is. Because it does not have the best bonus features. And all the bonus features are on the Criterion channel. Now here's here's my question. Yep. This is a tangent. What do you think of all your criterions that you own? What do you think is the best deal for as far as like what special features are included? Paying for your buck. Um that's difficult. I seem to remember I said I seem to remember and then I turn around clearly not having any answer or remembering <laughs> anything. Uh now I know this I know this criterion is is uh priced a little higher than the others, mm-hmm. but Brazil has an insane amount of stuff in it. Brazil is loaded. I'm also gonna say that this is an expensive criterion, but I think it is I'm surprised it's not worth more than it is, and that's the Jacques Tati set. Cause I don't think I will finish those bonus features for a long time. There are, there are mul- really? multi- how, how? multiple feature-length video essays mm-hmm. about Jacques Tati. Okay, I, wow. Feature-length, that's insane. Uh, similarly, I think the Cassavetes box set has a lot. Not only does the Cassavetes box set have like four or five behind-the-scenes special features things for each movie, but it also has a three-hour documentary on Cassavetes. Oh. Which, when we eventually get to Woman Under the Influence, I will be watching that. Oh, good. So I will... I've, I've, I have a deep retrospective love for Cassavetes. Except for Husbands. Husbands <laughs> still sucks. Open, I hate opening husbands. night is still the worst. No. Yeah. No, yeah. I cannot agree there. Yeah. No. I cannot. What else is the worst? Those husbands is the only one I hate. Shadows is also kind of dumb, but I don't hate it. I thought you liked shadows. Oh, that's okay. No, no faces is the one God I like. Those are the two. Remember, I always get them mixed up. Yeah, I do too. Actually, glory is good too. Yeah, glory. Glory is fine. Glory is fun. Yeah. Glory is a fun time. Yeah. Uh, it's September, finally, or it is already. We've gotten there. Yes. I don't know if that month has a significance, but I no. do enjoy the month of September. Not no. really. <laughs> Other than uh, another month, another couple days, and we get more Criterion announcements. Another month oh, means, really? well, 12 days. That's one of those things that it should be like something I look forward to every month, but I always forget about it until it happens. Oh, I look forward to it. I forget every once in a while, but I look forward to it. I also look forward to the beginning of every month when Criterion Channel announces yes. the new movies on the the channel and yeah they tell me what they're taking away which 
essentially plots my course of watching stuff for the month. Now, here's my question for you. Did you get to all of the Mike Lee movies that left the channel? Yeah, because I did not. You watch all of them? You know, I was I was surprised. Not that many Mike Lee films left the channel. It was only a few. Which uh, ones? And I think I think you did watch all of them. I did not watch. The only one I did not watch was Career Girls. Was that leaving the channel? It's not on my list. Maybe I missed it. Is it not? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe it was. There's still a few Mike Lees on the channel. I need to get to those. I think you've seen all the good ones, though. Like the really good ones. Meantime is very interesting. I haven't seen Meantime yet. We'll get Meantime there. has a very young Tim Roth. There was one movie that you watched that I forgot to ask you about. Now I'm trying to remember what it was. Sure. So I'm going to quickly go through a few things I watched. Yeah, go for it. I watched Kramer versus Kramer, the big brother Good. of Marriage Story. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Good movie. Dustin Hoffman. It made me. I watched that film. And then a few days later, I remembered the My Witch stories existed. And then I mm-hmm. just couldn't stop thinking about Dustin Hoffman's performance in that movie and how great it is. In the Meyerwood stories? Yeah. Yeah, I just watched that recently, too. Rewatched that. Uh, it was great. I was actually going to blind buy Death in Venice during the Criterion sale. It's a film by Lucino Visconti, who also did The Leopard, which is on this list. And I have that. I'm glad I didn't blind buy it because it was loathsome. A <laughs> little, little bit of hyperbole there, but it... Uh, I will say more in another format at a later time, perhaps. So uh, I'm actually looking at your your recently watched. Oh, you finally watched First Man. I did. Isn't it decent? I got it on 4K, actually. Wow. When I went to Best Buy. Yeah, it was uh, surprisingly a lot of things were on sale at Best Buy for 4K stuff. They got cheap movies. Yeah, I, I always forget to go there because I'm always so focused on the secondhand stuff. Like uh, Bookman's mm. and Zia. Bookman's is great. Yeah. I want to go to Zia someday. But yeah, I also watched Metropolis. Oh, I didn't finish that. I can't believe you've never seen Metropolis. I rated it. Didn't finish it. Look, I haven't, but I can't believe you haven't seen it. I actually, you rated it without finishing it, you asshole. Because it was really good. Which would be. It was really good. That would be more egregious if you gave it a bad score, but you gave it an amazing score without having finished it. Yeah, I don't think I need to. I don't see how it could be a bad film. Okay, here's the thing. I'm going to finish it within the next couple days because it is on. It's Metropolis. It's an old silent film. I was like, why am I? It's very long. Why am I watching silent films that are already in the public domain and easy to find elsewhere? It's not. Usually yeah. when something's leaving the Criterion channel, I watch it because it's hard to find elsewhere. That's not the case with That's Metropolis. True. That's true. It's on here's canopy, my question. by the way. You said, I don't see how it could be a bad film. Have you seen American Graffiti? I have not. American Graffiti is the only movie that I can think of that, as far as like my rating goes, and it, it drops an entire star in 30 seconds. And nobody but George Lucas could accomplish that. <laughs> I feel like there's a movie that I hate the ending, but I love the rest of it. Can't think of anything at the moment, but I know there's something. Which reminds me that it's remind me to bring up American Graffiti when we're talking about Army of Shadows, because there is a very distinct comparison I want to make here. Um, that is interesting. Which, and spoiler alert. That is what we're talking about today. Who knew? Yeah, it's almost like it's in the title. What was the thing I wanted to ask you about? 
Hold on. Hold on. Okay. Or you can keep talking. Yeah. So something I did is I got I got a note tape taking app called Evernote. Uh mm-hmm. recommended to me from another podcast. Is that the one with um the elephant? Yes. As the Yes. Yeah, I used to have that. Oh, it's very nice. I like it. It is. Anyway, so I've started uh just taking notes on every single film I watch. Just kind of like a diary. Wow. Um sometimes I take it during the film, sometimes I just wait till afterwards and I jot down a few things, but I figured, hey, it'd be nice just to have some thoughts about films. So it it improves probably memory and recognition of, of a film later on. Mm-hmm. Um, just so I can kind of tr- keep track of everything I'm watching because it's probably not an issue for someone who's watching one thing every week and can probably recall the, that one thing pretty easily. But when but you're what watching kind of life is that to live seven plus films a week, it, <laughs> it gets a bit uh, difficult to d- differentiate things. So I just I just want to point out to the listeners that Jacob has a letterboxed. It's true. Uh, he I has do. Evernote, and he has an Excel spreadsheet, all calculating various forms of data from the movie movies he watches. I'm actually, I my Microsoft subscription went away. Oh, he's retiring the Excel spreadsheet. No, I'm just I'm, I'm going to get my dad's subscription. I just need to get his his login info. But I haven't. Now, I, just I haven't wanna, updated I just it in a month, which is that you are using Excel only for this purpose, correct? Yes. No, I don't use Excel for any other reason. Um, Why would I? <laughs> All this is doing is this is making me think that every single time you watch a movie, you retreat to your your computer and you open up three different apps <laughs> and you write about the same movie in three different apps. I don't think that'd be so. I would I would be doing different things, right? Like Letterbox would be a review and then <laughs> Excel is strictly a a numbers data organization. That's and not making it better. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you, they have different purposes. And then uh, Evernote is just random thoughts. Some with some films, that, uh, a few things I watched, I pulled like I took a photo of the screen with my my iPhone. So not oh, not, no. not the greatest quality, but for like shots, I wanted to remember, and then I put them into Evernote. Oh, I I'm not dissing it i think it's great well i'm not gonna change i know it's a bit excessive to say the least but it is what i like to do no that's good that's good you get a process yeah the thing i was gonna ask you about was actually shit i forgot oh um hamilton i just watched that oh that's one thing yeah hamilton Uh, i'm not sure what i could add to the discussion on that other than it's great i've never seen it Hmm? well I, i know Okay, here's my question to you. Is it great because the play is great, or did you think it was filmed well? Because I know every, all that I know about Hamilton is from me hearing it secondhand from my friends who enjoy theater, and they all say you shouldn't film theater at all. It robs it, you know, it's a completely different medium. But as a, a mainly film-oriented person who watched it, how is it as a, a feature film? I think it... it- is very much a event film. Like it's not a feature. It's not a film film. It's not a narrative yeah, film. Yeah. It, it is an event film, like just a grown up version of your middle, your dad taping your middle school performance of uh, okay. Fiddler on the Roof or some other play. Mary Poppins. 
Were you in any uh, plays when you were in middle school or, or younger? I was, but I don't remember. I think it was I was in a a stage play adaptation of The Wizard of Oz. I don't remember what I was. It was not a main part. I was a dollhouse in a, a recreation of uh, the play The Dollhouse. You were the titular dollhouse. The, the titular dollhouse, yes. <laughs> wow. Yes, it, it was a very That's avant-garde production. Wow. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what other... Oh yes, Chekhov's the seagull. We were we were very well read as a group of third graders. That's, che- you were reading Chekhov. No, I'm joking. We were reading Chekhov's. Oh, okay. Well, there you Good go. Play. So Hamilton. So it's a very fancy version of an event play, a theater. But there were actually like cranes and dolly shots, and they would get angles from behind the set and everywhere. Wow. So there was some okay. actual good production value in there and good editing. So it is an enjoyable experience. It, it doesn't quite transform out of the theater event videography, but it, it gives you the experience in a way that is, is nice to have because most people mm. can't go to Broadway. That's true. That's true. Now, can we talk about how mediocre First Man is? I liked it. The only thing I remember from that movie is the opening scene. It was really weird watching it because I felt like I was watching a science fiction film. And I will say that because um, they were going to the moon, which yeah. today it's, it still seems amazing to go to the moon. Like that has not lost yeah. its luster because no one's gone to the fucking moon in years. Like we, we, we have degressed, de-evolved. Okay. What? Did we de-evolve? What's the point of going to the moon? What's the point? Okay, we spent all this time going to the moon and doing stuff like that, and then we did nothing of value. There is so much value to be had in space, and yeah, but we we landed on Mars. Well, things, well, rovers. Yeah, no, not people. You're right. But as far I'm talking about, I'm not talking about the. I do agree that we have not given enough attention to the idea of space travel. I agree. But as far as going to the moon, who cares? We've already been. What's the point? Because we could imagine if we kept building, kept up the same energy from the space race and kept building on that, we could have freaking space uh, moon bases. Here's the thing. If we are a one planet civilization, (laughs) if we are one planet species, it just it's very easy to wipe us out. But if we have a moon base, the human race, we have a moon base, we have a fighting chance. Yes, a fight. That's good. Good way of putting it. Not complete That's why I liked Ad Astra. That is, I yes, I need to rewatch because Ad Astra. Ad Astra, Ad. This is this is gonna turn into a quick tangent on Ad Astra. But Ad Astra, I hope it gets the Blade Runner effect, where one day we get a cut of the movie that doesn't have the stupid voiceover, because then I'll think it's a masterpiece. But Ad Astra is great because it predicts the reality of space travel. We want to think it's going to be this grand, you know, this this grand adventure into the unknown. But no, they're going to put a fucking Burger King on the moon because that's what humans do. <laughs> that's why I like that Astra. But right. But like the first man feels a little more advanced or more modern than it is because it's still I don't know. Going to the moon still feels like something new, something we haven't. No, done. I agree. That is something the movie did is make it it, it really hammered home how revolutionary that like event was and i'm a i wouldn't say i'm a huge space race uh space travel nerd 
but I'm I'm really into that kind of stuff. So yeah, I despite all of its its weirdness, I really like Ad Astra, and that's it's kind of like they're both very similar films, kind of in look and uh, approach. Yeah, but I do I really want more kind of soft sci-fi films like Ad Astra, and you know something that is just just ever so slightly beyond us. I think we're going to be sending people to Mars in 10 years. Yeah. The only thing I hated about First Man, I hated the camera work in that movie. So I noticed in the movie, the camera is often wide for wide. Let me rephrase this. The camera is often (laughs) wide. Nope. I was going to say the same thing over again. The camera is often static and stable for wide shots. Like yeah. it's not shaking, it's not handheld. And then when it goes into the scene, into like close-ups and into shot reverse shot, it's handheld work and very kind of jittery. Very jittery. Yeah. So interesting stylistic choice. Sounds like it didn't work for you. The only the only part the, the part that made me realize I hated it was spoiler alert for first man. Um when his his daughter dies. And they have that shot of him like just sitting sadly at the kitchen table, which I'm like, oh, this is a cool shot. But then the camera's like, <laughs> I'm like, dude, his daughter, let him sit still. His kid's dead. Yeah. It- the only things I remember liking out of the opening scene, and I love the score, the theremin underutilized instrument. Score is pretty good. I really loved all the space stuff. Yeah. I could take or leave the family jo- drama and it just was there. Yeah, that was the movie that made me realize I hated IMAX. Really? Did you watch it in IMAX? I saw this in IMAX because, you know, I'm a hardcore Chazelle fan. I think both La La Land and Whiplash are masterpieces. So I saw this in IMAX in a pretty much empty theater and I left with a headache. It's just too fucking loud. (laughs) I will make a quick recommendation to people is there is a awesome, awesome, awesome album music which i know nothing about so this is one of the few few (laughs) things about music that i i can share and actively know something about but it's called the race for space and it is a remix of like a techno pop kind of mood toned thing remix of classic recordings from the space race era so like radio broadcasts and the first one is Kennedy's speech. It's kind of it's interesting. Like it tells the story of the space race and I, I highly recommend it. Highly recommend listening to it all the way through because it's a narrative and it's it's one of the most interesting concept albums out there. Wow. Interesting. I feel like space in the space race. It's <laughs> <That's> good. <laughs> I'll admit that's one thing I never cared about. Like I understand its importance, but I just don't care. Like most things. I think I think that was the last time America had anything to be proud of. Uh <laughs> I'm sure there's small things you could be proud of us now. I mean, I don't know. But that that was like cultural things? No, you can't I think you can't we have a lot of culturally like you, you can say Fun. that <laughs> Frozen is a product of America, but you can't be proud of it as an American. Yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, I can't think of anything either. Anyway, Nirvana was pretty cool. 
You want, have you watched anything interesting or do we want to get into our movies? Uh, I'll just go quickly. I, <laughs> I know we had this discussion months ago, but I finally uh, finished my rewatch of The Return. I saw you log that and I was like, oh, look at that. Did you did you read my review? I did. I read a lot of things every single day. So, no, well, I don't remember. This is how I feel about Twin Peaks, but I said that this isn't the greatest thing that ever existed, but it's the best thing that ever existed. And it's hard to explain why, but it's true. Um, I f- this is OK. So I started getting into this um, uh, Finnish director, Aki Kurismaki. Karismaki. Um, he just makes a lot of really short movies. There's an actor in Jim Jarmusch's Night on Earth who um, it's it's like coffee and cigarettes, but instead of 10 short stories, it's five all taking place in the taxi cab. And the last one takes place in Finland. And the act, the main actor in that short was so good. It made me want to see what else he was in. And then I realized he died pretty young, but he did a bunch of these movies with a Finnish director named Aki Kurismaki. And they're all on the Criterion channel. Huh. They're all very short. And it was pretty good. Um, I finally watched The King of Staten Island. It was okay. A film we were it's planning on watching for the podcast, but never did. Yeah, it's fine. It's, it's fine. Perfectly likable. Um, but the big one I watched, as you know, I'm a big fan of The Big Lebowski, Inherent Vice, Under the Silver Lake. So one movie, to the people that know that I like those kind of movies, that is always recommended to me, is Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye. And I finally watched it. And I've only done this twice in my life, where I watch a movie and I don't rate it initially, when I log it in Letterboxd. Because I'm still not entirely sure how I feel about it, because it's very weird. Hmm. The only other movie I've done this for is um, Haneke's Funny Games, oh, okay. the German one. Because initially I was kind of like, eh, this is really kind of messy. But then I remember thinking the exact same thing about Inherent Vice and The Big Lebowski. And now those are two of my favorite movies. So I gave it a, a, a little pin in it for later. There's some Altman stuff I really like in here. The, the fact that Robert Altman never really never really tells you where to focus. He kind of hides the story in the actual film. You have to know who you're listening for and what you're listening to. Um, it's very hazy, which I enjoy that hazy aesthetic. And Elliot Gould is a great actor. Also, I love I know you're not a huge as big of a fan of the killing, but I love Sterling Hayden and everything that he's in. And he's in this movie pretty prominently. And I didn't know that until I was watching it. So all in all, good movie. That's one unit um, of a review. I'll have to, I'll have to read it. Uh, oh, it's it's decently lengthy. Yeah, at a time that's not during recording. But yeah, good movie. Love Robert Altman. It's a thinker. But that, that's pretty much everything. So should we get into our first movie? Okay. The movie we're reviewing in this episode, because these things are now split up into two is Jean-Pierre Melville's Army of Shadows, which is a 1969 French film about the French resistance during the Second World War. It, it The director, Melville, we've talked about him before in our second episode. We are now a long way away from that episode, those humble beginnings. Uh, but we mentioned in that one that he is a uh, he was a fighter in the resistance, and his 
Yeah, say the resistance. Resistance. Every, every uh, time. He was a fighter in the resistance, and he <laughs> took his his nom de guerre, his war name, from his favorite author, Herman Melville, author of Moby Dick. Interesting. So that's why he has the last that, name Melville. Hmm. I don't know who he stole his first name from, but I, I hope he didn't kill that person to to get it. <laughs> Well, you know, if there's one thing I know about France, there's not a lot of people named Jean there. No, no. The The movie is based on a book by another resistance fighter who wrote about his experiences during the war. So this is a a movie based on a firsthand account from a director who also has firsthand accounts of similar events. Very interesting. Very unique in the world of cinema. This is one of my uh, favorite movies. Uh, I've been meaning to revisit its place in my favorite list, and we might get to that later. Oh, no. And I have been long trying to get Chandler to watch it, so I am very excited to hear what he thinks of it. I just, I just want to say that the only reason I bought this movie is because Jacob likes it so much. I've, the only other Melville I've seen is Le Samurai, and I enjoy that movie, but I'm not like, oh, I need to see everything he's done. Which I have. <laughs> Which you have. I remember that vividly. Well, just to start, I think this is a very interesting pairing, this in The Shining. It seems to happen a lot in mm-hmm. movies that are in- interesting. Um, because just the same way I feel like The Shining isn't really about a story so much as it is about a mood. This one is very similar mm-hmm. in that there's no real overarching plot goals for these characters. This is just the most paranoid movie I've ever seen. It is the film is so it's following this group of of resistance fighters, one in particular who's the leader of of this sector of the resistance as mm-hmm. he goes through the trials and tribulations, and we kind of follow all these different uh few different people and it's kind of very episodic in nature as a film and i I, I won't say much more I guess Be- for well, now it's interesting. Yeah, because there's not real there's no one real way you can describe the plot of this movie because it it goes everywhere. Mm-hmm. And this is interesting because I've seen a lot of World War II movies. And I think this speaks to the movie that this is like the first like original or or fresh take on World War II that I've seen in a very long time. Yes. Because this is this is the same time as movies like Fury and Glorious Bastards, The Great Escape, but it feels so different because Unlike all those other movies, it doesn't take place in like the battlefield, the front lines. It is a much more secluded guerrilla type fight. And I found that to be very interesting. I will admit this. So th- this is where I'm conflicted okay. because I watched this movie over the span of two days. Because the first day I was incredibly bored. <laughs> and the second day I was incredibly fascinated. So it makes me think that maybe I just watched the first half on a bad day. Because I feel like I subscribe to the idea that you really need to see a movie twice before you can fully form your opinions on it. Mm -hmm. I guess I went into this movie expecting something else because it starts off in a prison cell. Mm -hmm. And I loved that part of the movie when they're in the cell and when he makes his escape with the a very, very brutal, very quick stabbing of the throat. (laughs) And at that point, I was like, this is what The Great Escape should have been, because I like that movie, but I was kind of underwhelmed by it. But then it starts going. I felt like I was losing track of everything Mm. out of what was happening, but it wasn't until the second day that I realized, oh, that's not really the point. Yeah, 
I I'm going to echo your thoughts here in that this is yet another film that I didn't really vibe with the first time I watched it. And it kind of grew in my mind over the years and I I returned to it again and it, it kind of it clicked in a way. And you are right. It I wrote that note down actually. In Evernote, by the way. Uh <laughs> I wrote it down that this movie starts as The Great Escape, but bluer and lonelier and sadder. Well, as somebody whose favorite movie is Inside Lewin Davis, I'm like, oh, this is nice. <laughs> I really like the aesthetic, too. So it, it's interesting. It's really impressive. Although I will say, minor gripe, that fake rain in the beginning looks terrible. So it's interesting. It was actually raining that day. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was uh, there's a, a bonus that feature. It can't be a real effect though. Okay. Oh, it is an effect. The rain yeah. was just so light they couldn't pick it up on the camera. Like oh. in order to focus on the far background of the car uh going across, the rain at that distance was imperceptible. So they had to double expose it and they shot yeah. that shot first and then they later filmed fake rain. On top of a shot that actually had rain in it, but you couldn't see the rain, so they may put fake rain there. And I, I, I will say this. There is kind of a low... Melville is a low-budget filmmaker. He was never a part of like this, the system, quote-unquote, in France, yeah. whatever that is. Because I find it funny that everyone's like, all the films you know from France are films that people say, oh, Breathless, Godard, Truffaut, they worked outside the system. Like, if all the films I know worked outside the system, then where was the fucking system? You know what I in mean? In France, at least? I don't know. <laughs> I don't yeah, think there was. Right. I think they're, they're overblowing. They, they're, they're tooting their own horn. It's like, oh, they had, they had the rich bourgeois backers, and we didn't. But there's no system to... Anyway, so Melville was working in this <laughs> film with a very limited budget, and it is... You can tell it's certain parts of the film. It's easy to. There's a... a sequence in an airplane at night and it's a little toy airplane and little uh <laughs> wonderful little explosions and i think the more i watch it the more it just gets kind of charming in its simple way that, that's and the I, film well that's how I, mm -hmm. the film isn't so much about those effects as it's the most yeah. of it is about the the characters and all that so it's easy to look past kind of uh amateurish uh technical well, that, effects that's exactly how I feel about the Powell and Pressburger movies we've watched. Like, there's a scene that I always recall in um, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp when it jumps to Colonel Blimp on the battlefield in World War One, And there, he's just on the battlefield talking to his one of his, you know, soldiers right before mm -hmm. he tortures somebody. And I'm like, this is so such a fake looking battlefield. But I love the way it looks because it's so it's so beautiful. It, it's not effortless. Mm hmm. They went through the effort to make it look real, but it doesn't. And there's something beautiful about that. And that is what I was thinking in the plane, because I'll admit when they cut to the wide of the plane, maybe I just can't recall it at the moment, but I, I don't remember thinking, oh, that looks fake. But when he looks outside into the window and sees the explosions, I'm like, oh, OK, that's cute. <laughs> and it's few and far between. Like, those are the only two real the opening rain sequence and then the plane sequence are the only two major kind of yeah they did but what they the had to do that, to get what they needed yeah but even in the rain sequence everything else looks amazing like i'm 
I'm fascinated on I and I want to learn how they kept up with this consistently dreary aesthetic. Like this is one of the bluest movies I've ever seen. I did say I do remember <laughs> saying in the last the end of the last episode starring or maybe it was just we were talking starring the color gray and blue. <laughs> and it really is true. Melville hated warm colors. The cinematographer said so. Or that's the camera. It's a shame, but it works really well here. <laughs> Part of me is like, oh my god, how how can you call this low budget? Look at all this period detail. And then I remember it was made in '59. And so in sure France, France looks much the same. Stuff. You just have to, yeah, add some film grain and well, I change the wardrobe. I definitely would not have known because it looks great. Aside from that one little thing, but it's such it's so minor. I don't even care. It's just funny to me. Um, but yeah, this whole movie, it's. I, I think I'm feeling the same way where I just did not expect I didn't understand where it was going. And maybe that initially turned me off. But in retrospect, I think it's very, very interesting because the the movie's purpose is to instill you with a sense of paranoia that every person you meet is somehow like they're living right under the beneath the surface. And there is never a moment of safety mm. in this movie. You never feel safe. You always feel like there's somebody about to bust in the door and take you into jail, which it does happen <laughs> eventually. It and and does. let's let's be clear here. Taking to jail is possibly the worst thing that can happen because the jails run by Nazis. Yes, that was my favorite scene in the movie. Because I feel like this whole movie the, where they try um, to break out the, the one. No, where um, the firing squad. Ah, the firing squad. That's a good one. Yeah. So the main character whose name I'm going to look up real quick, Felipe, this whole movie, um, Felipe is undoubtedly the protagonist, but I feel like this is one of those movies that it's constantly shifting perspectives, mm -hmm. characters, ideas, situations. Felipe is undoubtedly the protagonist, though, and I feel like a main part of this movie that is fascinating in retrospect is that it is a movie that is constantly trying to these characters are constantly trying to separate their humanity from what they do separate emotions from what is best for the cause mm -hmm. like this is something that's explored earlier in the movie when they have to execute that guy yeah which is a great scene but it's one of those things that philippe felipe is always the best at doing that he's always like very logical about what he has to do like this is what needs to be done it's for the resistance it's for the cause he needs to go whatever but then you get to that one scene where he has to run away from the firing squad. And initially he's like, I'm not going to run. I'm, I'd rather be killed than admit that I'm running in the face of this uh, thing or whatever. But there's a certain point where he can't deny his own human instincts and he runs. And it's just something that I, I find so fascinating because that's something that's pretty prevalent in all war movies is that you need to set aside your emotions whatever is best for your side is what needs to be done. Kill people, torture people, whatever. And he embodies that so well. And I feel like it's the downfall of everyone around him, especially the girl they have to kill in the end because he, mm -hmm. he, they, he gave him one piece of advice. This woman was a perfect soldier aside from the one thing that she wouldn't listen to, which was to not carry a picture of her daughter with her. That one little thing is what led to her death. And I find that just very fascinating. It's it is a film about isolation and paranoia in in wartime in general, kind of, because I think this is mm -hmm. this is applicable to 
more than just World War II, but World War II in, especially, and the fact that everyone in the film seems alone. Like that's a, a common reoccurring theme, that two mm-hmm. of the characters in the film are brothers. One is the resistance, the leader of the resistance in France, and the other one is just a, someone underneath the main character. And neither of them knows the other is a part of the resistance. And there's a little wonderful little monologue when the, the two of them meet in Paris and the, the younger, the, the brother who's not the leader of the resistance is like, I wonder if my comrades who know that I'm in the resistance don't know me better than you do, brother. The irony of that being is that his brother is in the resistance and they, they can't tell each other. And yeah. things like that are just, it, it, it's highlighted throughout the film of just being alone, being un- unable to talk to people, being unable to have kind of a genuine emotional connection because you're always so paranoid and worried about things happening. And it's very apparent in some of the blocking where there's this wonderful meeting, the little, the cell, the, the resistance, the resistance. They all meet at, in this like park area that's overlooking the city of Marseille. And you'll notice that the blocking has them almost always, they're always looking away. They're always, everyone, there's like five of them in the scene. They're all looking different directions. And there's another scene where Matilda, the, the woman, and Matilda, Gerber, right. is it Gerber, I think? Which one? Is the it? main guy. Felipe. Felipe. Felipe Gerbier. Gerbier. Yeah, so they're yeah, they're talking in they're walking and talking, and they don't look at each other at all. He sits down on a bench, and she looks the uh, the opposite way, and that combined with kind of the gray, overcast blue aesthetic, it, yeah. it just really hammers home again and again through the way that the actors are are playing. That they're just they have to kind of close off from the world in order to accomplish what they want to accomplish that there's a dedication here that is kind of seeping their soul and their life and ultimately the the war claims them all although it doesn't necessarily in the film that's well okay that's that is the comparison i want to make here to american graffiti i'm, I'm gonna spoil american graffiti real quick inside i'm not gonna spoil any of the plot details but american graffiti is this movie a lot like days and confused where yes, it um, is a film. It's, it's just <laughs> it's just people in the 50s fucking around. It's it's a slice of life movie. You have a bunch of different characters doing a bunch of different things, all taking place on this one night after high school graduation. Fantastic. Whatever. And it's a, it's a pretty happy go lucky movie. You know, it's a fun little period piece. Every character is fun and quirky or whatever. And then at the end of the movie, there's like a freeze frame where it tells you like such and such character died in Vietnam such and such character committed suicide and it's very dark endings for all these characters Mm -hmm. and that is one of those things where i'm like this is so dumb you have ruined this movie in the smallest amount of time and for the longest time is one of those things that made me think i hated those kinds of endings the title card endings because they're pretty popular yeah and the only other movie i can think of that does it well was um animal house because it's really funny the title card endings i'm going to interject real quick that the i really dislike the title card ending to chernobyl it's the only thing i don't like about chernobyl yes is that they they in in a film that is not a documentary just leave it out we don't need to know exactly you made your point leave us with that title card endings i i hate most of them because i i feel like it's better not knowing yeah 
especially movies that are like biopics. They give you the title card ending with a real person. Hate those things. But the only two that I like are Animal House and Army of Shadows. Because Army of Shadows does a very interesting thing where, you know, spoiler, we've already spoiled the movie. But they go through this very, very tough decision, this lose-lose situation where they have to kill Matilda because she'll either die in torture and not give up everybody or she will try to save her daughter. Either way, you're like, she's fucked either way. So they kill her, whatever. But it's a very emotional moment. You can tell nobody who's participated in the killing wants to do it. It's it's something that has to be done. This this whole movie is about things that have to be done. But afterwards, after them finally committing this horrible act, it is the title card saying that all three of these people died like within a year anyways. And it really emphasizes that point that it doesn't matter because everybody is pretty much doomed from the start. So even, you know, it, it, it really is a bleak ending to a very bleak movie. And it's like the only time that I've ever been like, wow, that actually added to a movie. It's almost like the point, like the film is. Yeah. With with morbid giddy building up to <laughs> telling you they're all fucking dead. <laughs> and I I think it's one of the greatest dramatic irony shots of all time is the the ending shot of the film is them driving away from the killing and mm-hmm. you see the arc de triomphe it through the windshield the arc of triumph and ultimately they do triumph and yet they are all dead and broken and yeah alone and isolated and that's just the feeling the film gives you and it is but it's never it's never like come and see levels of horrible it's constantly tense and paranoid but it's never like depressing depressing i also think we haven't talked about it but i think this is an amazing opening shot yes that is also i don't know if you've you've looked at any of the bonus features but that is one of the um this film is like fraught with history it's a film that you can you can figure out the history and it wasn't released in the united states until 2006 wow so some places you will see Army of Shadows 2006, and that's correct, technically. Mm. And it partially because it was kind of panned in uh, France when it first came out. The the film is seen as being a pro pro Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of France and yada, yada, yada. I'm not going to go through a French history lesson. <laughs> anyway, at the time when this was made, Charles de Gaulle had fallen out of power and fallen out of favor. And so the film was very much ignored and kind of left to rot for a very long time. And then it finally got its due in the early, in the mid two thousands. And the, one of the interesting things though, that probably cost half of the budget in and of itself is that opening shot where Melville had to really empty out, empty out the, one of the major intersections of Paris. That makes sense. One of the biggest cities in, in, on the continent. Uh, I've actually been to, and, It is it was it was I want to say it was illegal to have actors in Nazi uniforms on the streets of Paris. So this was Mm -hmm. like the first time that that had happened. So the opening shot is there's a lot of depth history, cinematic history behind that. That's really interesting to Hmm. look into. I would love tangent. I would love a history buffs episode on this movie. 
There's a lot because you could talk about the author of the book that's based on. You could talk about Melville's mm. experiences in the war and all kinds of different stuff. Yeah, this. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's a very interesting movie. It's very unconventional in a lot of ways, but it works really well. It also gives you literally no explanation to the politics of World War Two. No, which no. surprisingly you need to know sort of yeah because it, it starts off in vichy vichy france non-occupied france well the collaboration government then it goes to paris which is the nazis and then the nazis eventually occupy the vichy part of france and so it's just kind of the point of the film it that it's very interesting that the film and i think it's a good decision the film basically ignores all of the politics because it's not about that ultimately you can look into that and you can figure it out, but it, you don't need to know where and what the Germans are doing. You just need to know like they're a, in charge. They're bad. Yeah. And they're it's like uh, a brighter summer day. Yeah. Now, here's here's my question. Um, you said it recently. You reevaluated its spot on your mm -hmm. favorites list. Mm -hmm. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Higher or lower? Uh, ever so slightly lower. Oh, no. What did it? What went above pretty, it? Now? It's pretty high, to be fair. Um, Let me check. It is currently at number 15. Oh, no, I already moved it down. Okay. It's at number 15. I think it was at number 12 previously. So. Oh, now I want to see where what's beating it now. A portrait of a Lady on Fire. Wow. Wrong. Oh, you coward. Will you just admit the Topsy Turvy is a five? <laughs> so one of the things that is my... I can't say much for the score of Army of Shadows, except for the main theme or one of the main little tunes is one of my favorite all time, like little chord groupings in a, in a film. Mm. And it perfectly like it, it's, it happens at the end of the film and it's at the beginning and it, it happens yeah. at very specific parts. Like after they murder one of the, the guy who ratted out the main character. Yeah. And it's. It's very, it's, it's kind of like a somber lullaby in a way. And I just love it. It's just, it's only like two bars of yeah. music. It's very short, but it always just it's just lulling you into this kind of dour mindset. The only music I I I really remember, and I couldn't even hum it, is the opening, the march. I I thought that was a really creepy song. I liked it. This is another complete tangent, but I had no idea that you'd liked Yojimbo this much. No. You didn't know what? I did not know that. No. But it's just a great film. I I would have I would have there's so many other Kurosawa movies I would have assumed before Yojimbo. Yojimbo is it's interesting cuz you can tell from my top there's there's pairings in my top 10 list where like 8 and a half and Fanny and Alexander are a pair cuz they're both movies about directors where how is Fanny and Alexander about directors? Like a theater director? No, it's it's very much Ingmar Bergman kind of projecting his childhood. Oh, okay. Indifferent. Yeah, yeah. It's very abstract, but the theater as kind of a stand-in for film and all that and yada, yada, yada. Uh, but Eight and a Half is much more obviously a, a film about filmmaking. But then Empire and Yojimbo are a pairing where those are my... They're um... just the 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 cream of the crop for me of of action films and yojimbo is just too much fun it's too well shot i love the score <laughs> it's just uh, i i don't know well i was gonna say burning and porco rosa are, are very similar they both have blue and red 
colors in their posters. Correct. <laughs> they both have pigs. There's a whole grouping of eight, nine, and ten are red dominated posters. They, you're not wrong. One of them is called oh, Red. Oh, I saw your name and now my day, my <laughs> mood is ruined. Yes. Oh, then this did remind me. I was looking through one of your um, letterbox ratings. You say that it's your your twenty fourth favorite movie, but you also gave Paris, Texas, a four and a half. <laughs> this is true. That's all I'm saying. I I have uh, I feel no need to explain myself. That's fine. So yeah, Army of Shadows, great movie. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I want to watch it again. I recommend kind of stewing on it for a little bit. Don't. Yeah. Just kind of wait. It's a vibe. It's a vibe movie. Um, I really want to. Great learn... for rainy days. Oh my god, amazing. Well, that's the thing is when I started watching it, it was um very cloudy. Mm. Yeah, I want I want to see it again. I um I really I enjoy movies like this mm-hmm. that are all about atmosphere and tone, and stories seem random but are all connected thematically. I will very much. I'd I'd much. I'd be much quicker to revisit this than Le Samurai. Good, good. Better than Le Samurai. I'll say that. I will. Yes, I'm going to put forward. This is one of our. I think we did another one. I can't remember though. I will put forward this that I think this one deserves to be on the top ten, top one hundred movies of all time list. We said this about the Red Shoes. Yes, we did. Yeah, no, I agree. This this is one of the cream of the crop of world war ii films like i if you were to tell the story of world war ii this would be in one of them which because it's a unique oh i want to reiterate if you if you think you've seen it all in regards to world war ii movies if you if you're tired of tropes this is a good movie to watch because it is very much atmospherically the same as a lot of other world war ii movies but told in a it's almost like it's a completely different war it's almost like there is no war (laughs) it's like the nazis have won and now this is living under the nazis and trying to resist and i'll also say just to reiterate that um once you know was talking about i think the best shot of this movie Mm -hmm. um i really really like the shot that they cut to of the of the when philippe realizes where he's in a firing squad that shot they go to of the nazis just on the it's an amazing shot and it's the it's actually the shot that if you go in the letterbox, there it is. It's right there. Yeah. But it is a very haunting image. 